All right. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Glad you are here. My name is Brady. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'd love to meet you after the service. Uh, a little bit about me. I'm married to Sarah. We have a little daughter named Annie. We've been members here since 2019. We joined uh, the very end of 2019, and then we were here for two months, and then COVID uh, came along, and we saw your lovely faces on the internet. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to preach uh, this morning. Y'all be, be praying for Micah. As if, you, if you came in late, you heard he messed his back up, but thankfully I was scheduled to be here for a while before we even knew that, so the Lord has been good there. Um, it's a good thing we're having worship night tonight because after this, you're going to be uh, glad that Micah preaches every week. So you'll praise God for that. Well, hey, we all love a good viral internet moment. I know I love a good viral internet moment. One of my favorites I saw recently was on Twitter, and it was called Change a Word, Ruin a Movie Title. And so people on it, they would just throw you know, the internet and all, its, all, all of its creativity uh, had some great ones. So instead of You've Got Mail, it was You've Got Taxes. Uh, another iteration of that same thing was add a word, ruin a movie title. And so instead of fight club, it was pillow fight club. Uh, and my personal favorite, the Devil Wears Prada became the Devil Wears knockoff Prada, which I imagine is a charming tale of Meryl Streep wandering around Paris buying cheap stuff off of those mats. People sell stuff. Well, why do I bring up this silly anecdote uh, today we're going to look at what the Bible says about a very difficult, I think, and certainly a controversial subject. You've maybe seen that in your bulletin. Uh, the subject is the exclusivity of Christ and his claim to be the only true Savior and the only way to be reconciled to God. We're all tempted, I believe, even though some of those of us in the church, uh, but certainly in our culture, we're tempted to change or add a word to what Jesus says. We do this for a variety of reasons, of course. I think for a lot of us, we just we, we want to come across as tolerant. We want to be acceptable to our culture. Um, and and we, in, many, in many places in our culture and in some churches, we want to remake Jesus into our own image. Uh, we want to imagine that he might have said something different or add a word or take away a word. Uh, take a famous verse uh, we sung about just now in John 14, 6, when Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody comes to the Father except through me. It seems much more convenient, convenient to imagine him saying, I am a way, a possible truth, and a way to find your best life if that's what you want out of me. Many of you know that, that, that I worked in college ministry for 10 years, and uh, the college campus is a pretty unique place. There's a lot of diversity present. Other than age, there's a ton of diverse uh, perspectives and diverse people. Uh, you've got small town kids. You've got kids from the big city. You've got kids that are third and fourth generation students that bleed the school colors. And then you've got uh, people who are first generation students and they don't really know much about the school at all. And they're just, they just kind of stumbled in and they're there and they're having a great time. Uh, I could go on with all the different kinds of diverging identities and perspectives. But one big one that you also see, especially in our, our state schools in Texas, is a lot of religious diversity, especially from our international students. Uh, Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Mormons, agnostics, atheists, all across the spectrum. There's all these different beliefs, and they're all gathered together in one place. Uh, when I was at UTD, it wasn't uncommon to be approached by someone who would say, hey, have you heard about God the Mother? Okay, and I'll let you guys go chase that rabbit trail if you want to read about that on the internet. Um, 
inevitably, I'd have conversations with these folks about their perspectives. And one thing that I'd often hear from, from some, not all, but from some of the groups, especially uh, from the more progressive Christian groups, and I use that word progressive theologically, not uh, politically, one of the things you'd hear often was this notion that it was so nice that even though we all had different expressions of faith, we're all really worshiping the same God. That they'd go on to argue that God or God's accept worship from all religions, and the important thing is that we all get along and respect one another. Well, that diverges pretty sharply from the Bible, and today we're going to think about that. We're going to dig into what the Bible says about that perspective. Um, Before we jump into the main body of of my message today, I want to have three preliminary things that I want you to consider, and kind of need to be at the forefront of all of this. If you're new to Redeemer, this isn't really our, our typical rhythm. Typically, we'll take one passage of Scripture, and we'll just go verse by verse through it. Um, t- today, I thought for the purposes of this talk, we might jump around a little bit. So it's going to be in a lot of different verses. I hope that's okay. Um, so preliminary thought number one, everything that we do, the way we speak to others, uh, should be established and rooted in love and respect. We should love and respect people who are different from us, because that's what Jesus did. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. In these conversations, emotions run hot, especially when you're talking with non-Christians about this subject. Emotions come, come and run hot, and it's easy to forget that last part. As Christians, we're called to make a defense, of course. We need to have a good reason for what, why we believe what we believe. But as we're in conversations, we do it with gentleness and respect. I've personally seen people, I think, win arguments for the truthfulness of Christianity. They've demolished it philosophically, logically, whatever. And I think, man, they won that argument. But they did it in a degrading, uh, hateful, I think sometimes even spiteful way. And as the expression sometimes goes, they won the argument, but they lost the person. And we're not called to go about it in that way. We need to do this task and go about this process with gentleness and respect. Number two, if you're a Christian, preliminary thought number two, if you're a Christian, uh, the Bible uh, not your culture, not your emotions, not your political leanings, and, and even not some of your own personal inter- interpretations, ironically, should be your standard of truth. The Bible itself is what you should base your theological convictions on. And it will, at times, cut against some of the things that your culture tells you or what you might be predisposed to believe. If it doesn't, if it never pushes back on any of the beliefs that you have, it might not be the Bible itself shaping your convictions at all, but it might be your own personal and fallible interpretation. So interpreting the Bible, we do that uh, not siloed off from other Christians in a closet, but we do that together as the church. We do that joining in with the great cloud of witnesses that came before us. Um, those cults that I talked about, those started because people said, I'm just going to focus on my own private interpretation. That's going to supersede anything or anyone else. We don't do that as a church. We do this process together as we interpret the Bible. Lots more I could say on this, but I've got to keep moving. Uh, number three, and this is going to be really important for our last point. Uh, really respecting someone's views means having the courage to tell them the truth. We aren't being loving and respecting someone by lying to them or by soft-pedaling our beliefs. If we say, if you say, I worship the triune God of the Bible, and a Muslim asks you, are we worshiping the same God? It isn't respectful or loving of, of you or of me to shrug off these differences as inconsequential. 
What we're really saying when we do that is that theological distinctives are not important. And thus we're saying, your faith is pretty irrelevant. Your faith is not really very important. We wouldn't want someone saying that to us, so we shouldn't do it to others. You're saying that, that your and their faith is unimportant. You're trivializing their genuinely held religious beliefs and convictions. Friends, the eternal destiny of lost people is not unimportant. It's not only unloving, but it's hateful to say otherwise. Often, often what we do, what we say in the name of tolerance is actually a blatant disrespect of somebody else's views. Okay, so that's our preliminary three points. But let me get into the primary part of what we want to talk about today. Pretty simple, three points. Humanity and our condition. Number two, God and his solution. And number three, does the Bible itself give room for a different solution? So I'm really creative. So I thought, let's just go to our statement of faith on our church website and talk about that. Let's work from some of the verses that it cites on this subject. If you're a member here, by the way, I'm going to read two Fairly long, one of the humanity sections is very, pretty, pretty long. I'm going to read this, and you've said that you agree with this if you're a member here. So don't get mad at me. Uh, okay, so let's start with humanity and our condition, because we can't agree on how we can be saved unless we understand and know what we're saved from. If we say, I have cancer, but we think we have a cold, then we're not going to undergo the right treatment. If we don't know and have an accurate understanding of our status, then we'll seek faulty or misguided solutions. So knowledge of the truth ought to lead to right response to the truth. So point number one, humanity and our condition. Here's the Redeemer's statement of faith on humanity. You can find it easily on our website if you'd like. It's redeemerdenton.com slash what we believe. Uh, there's a blue button under a video of a very young Dr. Caswell that says statement of faith. So this is the statement on humanity. Bear with me, it's paragraph or two. Humanity is the special creation of God made in his own image. He created them male and female as the crowning work of his creation. The gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. In the beginning, man was innocent of sin and was endowed by his creator with freedom of choice. By his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. Through the temptation of Satan, managed or, sorry, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherits a nature of sin and an environment inclined towards sin. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. Only the grace of God can bring man into his holy fellowship and enable man to fulfill the creative purpose of God. The sacredness of humanity of human personality, pardon me, is evident in that God created man in his own image, and in that Christ died for man. Therefore, every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. All right, pretty deep, pretty nuanced stuff. I think it's helpfully nuanced. But let's break down a few of those sentences. Um, I don't have time to walk through the entire thing, but we're going to talk uh, about some of the lines that are most pertinent to this topic we're talking about today. So, uh, point number one, by his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. So, our statement of faith, if you, if you go and look at it, it'll have that section, then it'll have a bunch of verses at the bottom. And what it's saying is, this statement of faith, to the best of our ability to interpret, interpret them, is, is, is uh, established and rooted in the biblical text. The statement of faith is not good if it doesn't line up with the Bible. The reason that I signed it and said I agree with this is because I think that it's biblical in its foundation. So it cites different verses that support what we just read. 
So one of the verses and sections that it cites is Romans 1, 19 through 32. So I'm going to read a section for us out of Romans 1. So Paul is speaking of non-believers here, and he, he says, I'm going to start in verse 19. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God and did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, for they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Skipping down to verse 28, he says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And he lists a variety of things that he has in mind and examples of that. Skipping down to verse 32, he says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Well, that's a lot. What's Paul getting at here? What's his main point? He's got a lot to say there. One of the main things I think that he's trying to get across is that people are without excuse for their lack of faith in God and their disobedience of his law. How? How can they be without excuse? Why? Because God has made himself known. So it's not as though we can look outside. If we look outside and view what God's created, his, his natural revelation of himself, we should be able to perceive there's something beyond nature here that, that created and made this. So creation tells us something of God. It doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God, but tells us something of God. So the problem of our sin and our inability to see that isn't God's fault. It's ours. Paul is saying that they're, they're the person who's wandering around, doesn't know the gospel, isn't just waiting desperately for someone to share with them. No, he, he says humanity has suppressed their knowledge of God in a vain effort to find peace, satisfaction, vindication in created things rather than in God. The, the second thing in the humanity section that I want us to see is this line right here that says, Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence whereby his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. So I think Genesis 3, and our, our statement of faith cites Genesis 3, it's being referred to here in the first half. That's the, the fall narrative. Uh, but what, is the, what about the second part? It says his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. So we are his posterity, you and I, Adam's posterity. This, this idea this, that we're inclined, we have a nature of sin, is this flies in the face of the modern notion that people are mostly good. You, those two things do not go together. The idea that they're mostly good in this passage cannot be reconciled. The earlier passage that I read is, is relevant for that line, of course. Uh, but let's see another section of Romans that our statement of faith cites in support of this, found in, Roman, in Romans 5, uh, 12 through 19. I'm going to skip around a little bit, but I'm going to read a little bit of this. Romans 5, starting in verse 12, says... Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spreads all men because all sinned. Skipping ahead to verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Skipping ahead to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience will many be made righteous. So Adam was the the first representative of the human race. When when he decided to disobey God and fell into sin, this, this passage is saying we all fell into sin. If you think, like we might be tempted to think, well, I would have made a different decision. If I, was, if I was there, I wouldn't have screwed up like Adam did. False. You would have, I would have done the same thing. These verses are saying as much. Adam's transgression was our transgression, and now we are born with a sin nature. We are born into sin. My sweet, wonderful 17-month-old daughter, sweet and precious though she may be, possesses a sin nature. When mom tells her not to yank off the protective cushioning around our coffee table that's meant to keep her safe, you know what she does? She looks mom dead in the face and says, watch me, and grabs it. (laughs) Nobody taught her how to do this. She wants to be in charge. She wants to break the rules. She sees the rules set up for her protection and says, actually, I know better. And I think even somewhere deep in her subconscious little mind, she wants to tell mom, I call the shots. I know what's best. Do you know who that sounds like? Sounds like me. And it sounds like you. Sounds like us. We see God's rules meant for our protection, and we question his goodness. We question and we think, why, if God loves me so much, why would he put this restriction there? He's trying to keep me down. He's trying to keep something from me. I know better than that. Did did God really say? And then we go our own way and set up our own little kingdom, and think that we'll be happy, and think that we'll find satisfaction and hope and peace in created things rather than the creator God who loves us and cares for us, and put these restrictions not, for, not to restrict us for uh, like, a, like, a, like a guy poking an anthill, but no, he loves us and he cares for us, and he put these restrictions in place for a good reason, because he is good. Well, there's the bad news. Thanks for coming to Redeemer Church this morning. Have a great day. No. I think that's the bad news. That's what we, what we were. If you're a Christian, that's what we were stuck in. If you're not a believer, that's what the Bible says that you're stuck in. It's stuck in sin. We are going to come back to a line or two of that statement on humanity before we close. But that's the bad news. What's the good news? That's point number two, God and his solution. Here's our statement of faith again. This is the section on salvation. Don't worry, it's shorter. Salvation involves the redemption of the whole man and is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption for the believer. In this broadest sense, salvation includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm going to do something that's going to infuriate the note-takers because I just like to mess with you. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, The time constraints, right? We're going to talk about point two and point three in the same section here. So point number two, God and his solution. What we just read, salvation. Number three, the next point, does God offer some sort of an alternative solution? Maybe there's another way than what we just read. So what is God's solution? If, If you're here at Redeemer, you've heard this before, I hope. And if you haven't, here it is. God's solution to our sin problem, what we just read about, 
is the good news of the gospel, is that he sent his own son, as it says, by his own, uh, by his own blood, he obtained eternal redemption for the believer. All that sin we talked about earlier, Jesus died on the cross in our place to take the penalty for that sin and rose from the dead, demonstrating that he is who he claimed to be. But notice the last three words, for the believer. He did these things for the believer. The salvation is only applied to you if you are a believer in him. That's what we're going to talk about next. This next part, by the way, I'm just trying to channel Charles Spurgeon. So Charles gets all the credit. I just read Charles Spurgeon and say, that sounds good. Let's go with that. God has shown us in his word that it's faith in Jesus that saves us. Pretty standard Christian fare, right? I don't think I'm going to get a rah-rah on that. Uh, pretty standard Christian fare. Faith saves us. But what is faith? Faith is one of those words, as, as we know, it's so commonplace that we all just take for granted that we mean the same thing when we say, oh yeah, I've got faith. Biblically, faith is not just mental assent. It's not just like, I agree this chair is there. Some of you have seen and heard the chair analogy. Biblical faith is actual personal trust in the object of that faith. So I can say all, say all the live long day, I believe this chair is here, but I'm not having biblical faith in it until I sit in it and say, I believe and I'm demonstrating trust that it can bear my weight. Biblical faith, uh, it, it is not, it's not that we're saved by how much faith we have. It's not like we have to have a certain threshold amount. Uh, it's not about how lively and energetic our faith is. It's good to have lively and energetic faith, but that's not what saves us. Our faith is not in how much we have, how lively and energetic it is, but by what, or in this case, who our faith is in. But apparently... There is some disagreement in churches on this. Some argue that maybe there is a way uh, for those who don't actually have faith in Jesus. Maybe there's some sort of a, a, a back door for them. Uh, what about these people? And there's, there's a group of people cited who might be exempt from this faith requirement. What about people uh, of genuine faith in other religions? They're so sincere in their faith. They're, they're a really good person. My Mormon neighbor is a really good person. Surely God would accept their sincerity and how, and how good they are. Look how good they are. That's what's commonly thought. Well, what's the assumption there? Is that sincerity and genuine faith in some other thing, personal sincerity and goodness, ought to merit salvation? But is that what the Bible says? Again, we go back to this notion that if you're a believer, we're rooting our theological convictions in what the Bible says, not what we might be predisposed to think or come up with ourselves, and certainly not what our culture might say. So let's look at a couple of passages on this. Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you might be saved. Is that what it says? No. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, but with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Paul was asked straight up in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? Think we should listen to what he says? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I think we overcomplicate this, right? Believe in Jesus, like we said, and have genuine faith. This isn't just belief in some generic God. This is belief in Jesus and you will be saved. You ever heard John 3.16? Pretty popular, right? That's what Jesus said. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, what? Believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you know there's a verse 17 after that? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Pause. We stop right there. What might we think? Oh, see, Jesus said that God is going to save the whole world through him. It's what it says right there in verse 17. So there we go. Evidence that there can be salvation through Jesus, but maybe not a specific faith in him. Do you know there's a verse 18 after that? Let's keep reading. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in generic idea that God exists because I look at his natural revelation. Is that what it says? No, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you don't have personal faith in Jesus, then you have it in something else. We can't not have faith. All of us have faith in something. I don't know what you have faith in this morning. What's the standard like 2023 American answer? I mean, it's different for different people, but generally speaking, I'm a pretty good person. I'm better, I'm definitely better than my neighbor, right? I'm better than that guy I saw on the news who did this terrible thing. I'm a pretty good person. God will accept me based on my sincerity and my my general overall goodness. Friends, this is what the Bible calls works righteousness, and it is not enough. The Bible and the witness of Scripture is clear on that. No amount of good deeds that you ever do will be enough to deal with the sin that you've perpetrated, either by omission, things that you should have done, or by commission, things that you did do, but didn't, or you did do. Spiritually, you and I, we've been permanently disfigured by sin. It's like we're a bottle of water that has some food coloring dropped into it. Your good works are like adding more water. Will it look better superficially? Well, yeah, you're diluting the food coloring. You're dumping a bunch of good things into it, dumping more extra water into it. It's going to look better, but is it ever going to be back to that state? No. It'll never be made right again in your own power. You and I, we need God to intervene in a supernatural way. So why does God require faith? Put simply and most simply, because he said so, and he's in charge. He's the creator. We're the creation. We can't say to him, nah, my way's better. I'm going to do it like this. It's not the way this works. He has the right to order the world and creation in such a way as he pleases. And that ought to be enough, but... In his grace and in his love, I think he gives us even more than that. We can perceive a bit more, I think, as to why this is the case. And this, we come along, we read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, very famous verse, but one that upends all other faiths. Christianity has this thing called grace. For by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And if I had time, I could read off a dozen other similar verses that talk about the nature of of saving faith through grace and grace alone. Grace is this beautiful thing that distinguishes Christianity from all other worldviews, all other other faiths, that says that you're saved not because of how good you are, not because of any work or good thing that you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. I think God knows that if, if we were saved by our good works or the sincerity of our faith or any other kind of emotional thing that we could have stirred up or something that we had done, we would be tempted to take the credit. And that would diminish God's goodness and what he's done. It would elevate our own. We're so messed up that we would want to take a little bit of credit for what Jesus has done. We want to say, I did this or I did that. I had so much inner peace that I found. I studied really hard and I figured it out myself. We want to put honor and glory on us 
and not on God. And God wants us to know that our salvation is by a gift, by his power and his ability. Biblical faith magnifies the one that it's found in, and it's found in Jesus. So Jesus gets the glory. So in review, it's only by personal faith in Jesus Christ as the one true Son of God and his work on the cross that we can be reconciled to God and be saved. This is demonstrable, I think, in Scripture as we've seen. I think it's pretty hard to argue from a theological perspective. But I realize, for many of you in the room today, this isn't just some abstract doctrine or theoretical idea that's floating around in the sky and doesn't have any practical relevance for your life. Many of you, I know, have loved ones who have passed away that you had no reason to believe that they had saving faith in Christ. Some of you have friends or family that you've been sharing with and praying for for decades, and you have no reason to think that they have saving faith in Christ. Some of you have children who you aren't really sure where they are in their faith right now, and it, it freaks you out. Some of you have, uh, I know, have, have, have lost very young children before they were even capable of having and possessing saving faith. I wanted to close with a few quick words on that. Um, and I'm going to speak to the two different groups here briefly. On the matter of the children, those who, maybe, who, who die, um, who haven't placed faith and trust in Christ because they were unable to, we actually saw, maybe some of you probably picked up on this in the humanity section, there's an important line in our doctrinal statement that says, uh, talking about these people that haven't professed faith in Christ yet, therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors under, uh, and are under condemnation. So, Christians and, and people who really have a high view of the Bible and uphold the truthfulness of the word have distinguished between those who do not believe versus those who cannot believe. Especially in, in Baptist churches, this is sometimes, some people call it the age of accountability. Some of you have probably heard that term. Well, what is the age? Well, we don't know for sure what the age is. Uh, there, we have to admit that there is a little bit of mystery here. Uh, but because of Jesus' clear and consistent witness and his attitude, towards children, especially his admonition that our relationship with God should, should be like that of a child in Matthew 18, we have very good reason to believe with confidence that children who die and who haven't had even an opportunity to place faith in Christ, we have confidence and we can say with a high degree of certainty that they are indeed in the presence of God and will enjoy him forever. Um, the same thing, by the way, I think would apply and people would make exceptions or room uh, for those who have some sort of a, a intense mental disability that renders them unable uh, to have saving faith in Christ. This is something that is, is pretty common. I think that it speaks directly out of our doctrinal statement there. Okay, so that's children and those maybe unable to believe. But what about those who, who, who can understand the gospel, uh, who, who have maybe, maybe some who have never heard it, uh, or those who hear it and reject it? Well, I hope that this, this doesn't come across as overly simplistic or uncaring because I, I get that this is hard. But just a couple of words, I think, of encouragement if you're in that place. Um, if that's you, you need to ask yourself, at the end of the day, do I believe that God is good and loving and wise and gracious? Now, that seems so basic, right? This, this idea that God is loving and good, all these things, we just take for granted, that God is loving, uh, many of us, especially if we grew up in the church, we take that for granted. But a follow-up follow -up question to that is, where do you think that you got the idea that God is good and loving from? Where does, where does that notion even come from? Friend, I would submit that you got that belief from the Bible, either directly or indirectly. You believe that God is good and loving because of a special revelation of God in his word in Scripture. 
God's general revelation we talked about already in nature that everyone has access to surely has some beautiful things to it, right? Got some things that might lead you to think of and see God as caring, certainly see him as creative. But the physical world and the natural world is harsh, right? It's violent. It's dog-eat-dog. You wouldn't think of God as loving unless you had heard about his love in the Bible. So what does that mean? It means that we have a God who we trust is these things, good, loving, caring, wise, and gracious. But it also means that we can't separate those attributes from the other ones, like his justice and his holiness and his, the fact that he is righteously wrathful against sin. We can't have the ones we like without also having the ones that at times might perplex us. And moreover, a God that is loving must also be just. A just God is a loving God and vice versa. I want to close with this. As we grasp the exclusive claims of Christ, it should compel us to share the good news of the gospel with those around us. Moreover, if it is true that there is a way to salvation apart from personal faith in Christ, if, if that was true, it would mean that a, if, if a person is just starting from a neutral place spiritually, which, as we've seen, isn't actually the case biblically, if it, if it, would, be, it would mean that a person that's starting from neutral, and by hearing the gospel, then that they become on the hook for their response, that would, they would actually be worse off than before if they hear it and reject it. It makes vast chunks of Scripture completely nonsensical, if that's the case. The mission that Jesus has given you and I as followers of Christ to go and make disciples, if a person is, is in a state of innocence and that they would become, if they would receive salvation apart from saving faith in Christ, we shouldn't put the gospel before them because then if they reject it, they're worse off than they were before. Again, it makes vast swaths of the New Testament unintelligible and make, they make no sense. Friends, our lives, the lives that we live and, and, and the things we profess ought to reflect the transforming power of Christ. I pray, that, I pray for you and I pray for myself that, that our words, the way we go about doing this task, would be seasoned with kindness, that our actions would demonstrate uh, the compassion and mercy that flows from a life shaped by Jesus and the gospel. And that we know we're saved, not because we're good, but because he is. And as we go today and as we go into worship, we carry this truth with us. Let it sink in and permeate our lives May the exclusivity of Christ's sacrifice on the cross then propel us to seek the lost, to comfort the brokenhearted, and point people to the only hope that can be found in Christ. In the words of the Apostle Paul, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. It's 1 Timothy 2.5. Let us rest in the assurance that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. We pray for us. Well, God, thank you for a few minutes around your word. Pray that um, you would use your word to convict us, to shape us into the followers of Christ that I know many in this room really desire to be. I, I know that the message today is, is not the easiest one to wrestle with, and I, I pray for those who uh, maybe are finding this kind of confusing or struggling through this right now. pray that these words have been encouraging in some ways. I pray they would know that this is a place where they can ask questions, and I definitely personally encourage that. Um, Lord, we just, we know that this task to go and make disciples, uh, if we try to do it on our own, we'll fall flat on our face. So Lord, we acknowledge how, how badly we need your help. We acknowledge your goodness, and we thank you that uh, you've revealed yourself to us in your word in such a clear and, and compelling way. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.